You're listening to I Fucking Love This Record, a music podcast hosted by me, the Derek Care of You. I hope you enjoy the show. While we wait for the lawyers, guns, and money to arrive, we will be taking a shot at Excitable Boy, the third studio album by Warren Zevon. The album was produced by Jackson Brown and Waddy Watchell and was released on January 18, 1978 by Asylum Records. Excitable Boy brought Zevon to commercial attention and remains the best-selling album of his career. He's the keeper of the keys. He'll put your mind at ease. He's guaranteed to please. Back by popular demand is writer and heavy metal madman, Eric Schmidt. Eric, tell me, who's your tailor? I would love to share with you who my tailor is, sir, but I think I'm just, it would disappoint you, to be honest with you. I'm just guaranteed to please. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) How are you doing, Reverend D? I am doing well. Thank you very much. So uh, happy to have you back on the show here for season three. Astute listeners will know that you uh, appeared twice in season, well, once in season one, once in season two, two of my more popular listens. So uh, I appreciate you coming back and, and bringing that built-in Eric Schmidt audience. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. No, I've had a blast doing I had a blast doing the first two, and uh, I know a lot of my friends enjoyed listening to them. So I'm glad to be back. And I'm, I'm really excited to sort of step outside my comfort zone of the uh, metal genre hair metal or otherwise and as we step in to see warren zevon here yeah i'm pretty excited about that because i know there was a a couple of different ways that we could go and uh season one we talked about metallica's ride the lightning season two we talked about tesla's mechanical resonance and uh i thought well are we going to keep with the metal or are we going to branch out and after some discussion we decided we're going to branch out so uh talking about warren zevon's Excitable boy. Tell me, Eric, how did this album enter your life? I would love to tell you that I was fashionably late to the Warren Zevon party, but I was embarrassingly late. The host was already dead by the time I really, you know, really dug into the Warren Zevon collection. I came, like everybody else, I knew Werewolves of London. I got drunk and awooed with everybody else. And I remember, I remember the song from Color of Money. But when I really, really fell in love with the artist and with his catalog was during Californication, which was a TV show, a Showtime series with David Duchovny. He played a hard partying writer who moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. And for whatever reason, they would play Warren Zevon songs during the episodes. The first one I heard was Don't Let Us Get Sick. And then I heard a, a track off his farewell album, his literal farewell album as he, the one he was creating when he was dying. And it was, uh, keep me in your heart for a while. And I just did a deep dive. And as we've mentioned before, we did the Tesla one because I'm from the eighties. I immediately drove out to a used CD store and purchased half dozen or so Warren Zevon CDs, and which is excitable boy was in that half dozen. And I really, really loved that CD. I loved two or three of those. Uh, excitable boy was great. The one prior to that, which was a self-titled, which came out two years earlier. I really enjoyed as well. I think I actually enjoyed more tracks off that one, but Excitable Boy was clearly his more successfully commercial one. I think it reached number eight on the U.S. charts, whereas uh, his self-titled one only reached like 189 or something like that. Notoriously a flop, that first one. The first one was actually Wanted Dead or Alive, which came out in 69, and that should have been a flop. That was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard that one. Okay, yeah. So I know they, well, even the self-titled, I think they were expecting that to do a lot better than it did. And uh, I can't remember if that first one, because I know he's on Asylum. He was on Asylum. And that was uh, David Geffen's label for the people who didn't have a home. So it was like he was, it was, I think that's how he described it. That like, that was specifically for artists that he loved, but he didn't think he could really sell. So he put him on Asylum, hoping for something. And I think even Linda Ronstant was on that that record label. And that's probably how they kept making all their money to support artists like Warren Zevon. I've been trying to think exactly because I remember my sophomore year of college, I had a new friend. Uh, so it was a, like a returning friend's new roommate. And he and I just clicked immediately. So Jason Dominic, if you're listening to the show, this is you I'm talking about. Uh, and he thought that I looked a little bit like Warren Zevon because I had the round glasses and I had the, and my hair is longer. So he thought I looked like Warren Zevon on the cover specifically of this record. And my hair was longer, but it was like similar color, similar, you know, the glasses and whatever. He made me, or made me, he asked me to cord his uh, answering machine message 
as I'm sure you remember, as, as another person who probably had an aunt, you know, when you would do goofy shit with your answering machine. So he played Werewolves of London in the background. And I said, hey, this is Warren. My friend Jason isn't home right now or something like that, you know, it, and nobody could see me. So it was a joke that only made sense to us. And that was good enough. You know? <laughs> sure. <laughs> But I don't remember the album making a huge impression on me at the time. I remember listening to it and I knew we of London because of Color of Money mainly, because I think that was not only in the movie, but I think used in the advertising. And I was the only hit that he had. So I was kind of familiar with that as a you know background noise. I don't remember really getting into it at the time, but it was just kind of floating on my radar. And it, so it wasn't until probably 99 or 2000. And I don't remember if I just sort of picked it up on the fly or if I got it because I loved The Wind. So The Wind did come out, which was the final record. And Keep Me In Your Heart is an all-timer. That's an all-time classic right there. And I don't know if I liked that so much that I went back and bought stuff or if I had already bought stuff and then got The Wind. I don't remember exactly. But this is uh, an album of just pure light rock perfection. And so this one just grabbed me immediately. And there's a handful of other stuff by him that I, I really like. I think he has just really terrific, sardonic, self-deprecating, funny, goofy, strange, macabre lyrics, depending on what he needs to be at the time. And he was a guy that seemed to just live at the margins of the music industry. He had a whole career. And here it is, his what second, third album. He has one fairly minor hit, and that's it. <laughs> somehow managed to have his career. I don't think he ever had to go back to, to work a real job. And uh, he wrote a song with Hunter S. Thompson about hockey. <laughs> the hockey and, and David David Letterman sang backup on that. Yeah, yeah. Hit somebody. Is that the that the one? Yeah, that's so, exactly uh, what he, yep. Yeah. I appreciate Warren Zevon probably more than I like Warren Zevon as an artist, because I like Warren Zevon plenty as an artist. But I think as a person, as an entity, as you know, whatever you want to say, Warren Zevon is my dude, you know. I was really happy when because I know we had talked about maybe doing the wind and I like that record a lot, but I'm I'm glad we we settled on this one. Let's go ahead and get into our track by track analysis. Side one, song one, Johnny strikes up the band. Dry your eyes, my little friend. Let me take you by the hand. Ready, get ready. Rock steady when Johnny strikes up the band. They'll be rocking in the project. Walking down along the strand. Ready, get ready. I think this is just a really nice mid-tempo number to open up the album, to get things started. Uh, it has a bit of a Springsteen feel to it, to me. Obviously, the vocal approach is very different than what uh, Bruce Springsteen would do. But just something about the music has that mid-70s Springsteen vibe. Doesn't sound like he's trying to rip them off. I don't even think that would be like an influence, just more just that feel. And one of the things I had always gotten from this that it was about maybe like a local band. So somebody that they're hoping is gonna is gonna do well, whatever. But then it turns out it may this may be about Johnny Carson. <laughs> <laughs> And I never got that read and it makes perfect sense. Uh, but I just don't, cause I think when he has that, you know, they're rocking in the projects line. And I just thought this was, cause a lot of times we want our bands to be the scrappy underdogs who have the talent and they, you know, this is how they burst out of their home scene kind of thing. Sure. And that's how I'd always taken it. You know, Johnny strikes up the band, like he's getting the band together. So this is like Eddie and the cruisers or something. No, you know, maybe it's about Johnny Carson, but you know, that's maybe what was written, but that is not the interpretation I take. Eric, what do you think about this one? First of all, great callback to Eddie and the Cruisers. I will be listening to On the Dark Side as soon as we wrap this up this evening, especially since we're, we're both enjoying a few beers at this point. So <laughs> that will only inspire me to drink further. I also read into that that Johnny could have been Johnny Carson. I read this song, first of all, as sort of a faint or like a boxer's faint because it's very upbeat, which sort of is a contrast to the rest of the album. I mean, it's a dark album especially the next two songs. As regard, regardless of the tempo of the music, the lyrics and the stories that are told throughout this CD, this album, are dark. I mean, there's, there's really not a better adjective for it, for, the, for, the, for those tracks. I do enjoy the piano playing on this, I think. And I, <laughs> you won't hear me say that very often when I'm referring to rock and roll music. But <laughs> I, I did like that. I, I think it's a great setup. There's not really a storyline in this or a protagonist per se, which 
as you you referenced in your intro, was one of the reasons I'm a big Warren Zevon fan. Is he's he's a tremendous storyteller. He's a tremendous developer of characters, and he's also you know he's a big reader, which I, I know based on a few documentaries I've seen. I think that obviously aids in the craft of, of songwriting. You, you know, you're reading. He, he mentions what you mentioned Hunter S. Thompson as a collaborator on the hockey song. He was a big fan of writing, of reading uh, Hunter S. Thompson. More than that, he's. I also watched a doc where he said he was mentioning why his tones are so dark, and he he referenced Hunter S. Thompson. He's one of his favorite writers. He's like, I guess that's just sort of rubbed off. You know, that's that's one of those things. But in any case, I, I, that's how I I've looked at this band, this song. I, I liked it as an intro because I liked it as him being sort of deceptive, sort of luring you in with, hey, this is going to be a poppy, upbeat number. And then, boom, I'm going to knock you over the head with the next two tracks, which will have an upbeat, temp- well, maybe Roland's not so much upbeat tempo, but Excitable Boy definitely is. Yeah. So let's go ahead and wander on over to track two, the aforementioned Roland the Headless Gunner. Roland was a warrior from the land of the midnight sun With a Thompson gun for hire Fighting to be done The deal was made in Denmark On a dark and stormy day So he set out for Biafra To join the bloody fray What do you think about this one? I love this song and it, honestly if you asked if a, a complete stranger walked up to me and said what do you think is how would you describe Warren Zevon? What one song? And I, it would either be this one or Excitable Boy. I mean, he has a great protagonist. It's, it's, it's a Scandinavian mercenary recruited to fight in Africa. And I love the storyline. It's clearly the legend of Sleepy Hollow, but he puts it in, in modern day. Well, not modern. It was modern day at the time <laughs> as, as, a, as an operative. As, <laughs> and he's, he's just walking around hunting. And then the CIA, CIA jumps in and they, they recruit uh, Van Owen to, to shoot him. And then he goes on a rampage just hunting Van Owen down for the rest of the song and takes him out. Uh, I, I love the imagery. There's a, there's a lyric in there that refers to knee deep in gore, which <laughs> is just, it's powerful. But that's, that's how you write it. He is, as I said before, he's dark. I feel like this song really marks, and this is probably being a little over dramatic. And again, we're a few beers into the podcast here, but I feel like this sort of, I know he was, wanted to be a folk artist to start. And then he, he's really more of a rock and roll musician, but this is sort of a, a more aggressive folk song. I mean, it's, it's bad boy, bad, bad Leroy Brown with, you know, heavy artillery. I feel like there, you know, his predecessors were perhaps Jim Croce and Cat Stevens to an extent. His contemporaries are Springsteen and Jackson Brown. But I feel like he 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 definitely carried it over. He's I I don't think you can refer to him as folk at this point. But I think that's because that was his initial sort of career goal. I think that's what he may have been shooting for with this. But it's. I, I, I just love it. Like I said, it's the epitome. It, it's what, when I think of Warren Zevon, this is the first song that comes to mind. I love this song as well. And before I get into my analysis of the song, I do want to tell a quick joke, not quite a joke, but uh, something that's a part of my stand-up set. Because when I talked about when I named my son, or when we had to come up with a name for my son, and we wanted to find something that would work both in Poland and in America. And so we, you know, thrown a couple of different things around and because there's a handful of names that are the same, they may be pronounced a little bit different. And so I had brought up the name Roland because it's not a very common name here, but it is a viable name in Poland, let's say. So I make the suggestion to my wife and then I go to work. And then later on, she calls me and she says, you just did that because he would be Roland from Poland, didn't you? And that was exactly why I wanted to do that. So uh, that, that one got struck down. So um, <laughs> I was hoping for beer out the nose. I, w- I thought I timed that you were drinking a beer, but no. You were so close. <laughs> so like you said, this tells the story of, uh, of an avenging ghost, or the, the avenging ghost of a betrayed mercenary. And, and musically, this song is just about perfect. From the piano intro to the crisp drumming to the organ splashes throughout. And I love the lyrics. I love the story. But 
But I have to say, if you get paid to kill people and then someone gets paid to kill you, do you really get to be that salty about it? I mean, to become some kind of avenging spirit. I mean, I know it was one of his co-workers, let's say, but still, you're a mercenary and you got taken out by another mercenary. Suck it up and go to hell. You know, I just I love the way this work, you know, this whole song and the end, like the martial drumming at the end and the way he sings. And when he hits that last line about in Palestine and Berkeley, I just love that. It's so good. <laughs> this is such a fantastic song and uh, is apparently based on the stories that a guy because he ended up tending bar in Spain or something for a while. Warren Zevon did. And so it was the guy who owned the bar was telling stories about these mercenaries that he knew or, or whatever, or if he, if he was a mercenary, I don't quite remember the story now. And I didn't know that when I first heard this song and I knew that there was this connection between him and Hunter S. Thompson. And so when it was uh, Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner, I thought there was a play on words with Hunter S. Thompson, and I thought that was part of it, but I don't think that has anything to do with it. So that was just, uh, that was me reading more than to it then, and that was probably there. Moving on to track three, the title track, Excitable Boy. This one's super up tempo, and <laughs> you know, probably the most uh, probably the most up tempo song on on the album, and it, it does a little bit of a of a faint, like you had talked about with the first one. So you know, the first couple of uh, first couple of lyrics, it's you know he's obviously a problem child, and at the, the, the time, you know, figure this is what 1978. And that's how they would just label troubled kids. Uh, he's just excitable, you know. He'll 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 figure it out and he'll calm down. That's the idea. And this has just that kind of mid '60s rock and roll feel to it because it's got the the big saxophone lead in it, as opposed to a lot of times with rock songs, they'll have just somebody come and you know take a saxophone and fart all over the end of the song. But this is you know the horn goes throughout, and it's got the female backup singers, including Jennifer Warrens, who was a backup singer for Leonard Cohen for a long time, and I think. Linda Ronstant is the other one. So it's Linda Ronstant and Jennifer Warren singing backup on this song. And of course it goes super dark, super quick. Uh, you know, so he, uh, he kills his date. Yeah. He kills his date and then they send him away and then he digs up her bones when he gets out of the hospital, you know, a hundred years later or whatever. And he sings the whole thing with a fucking smile on his face. And so it's kind of hard almost to get all of the humor to it because it almost feels like he's just not taking it seriously about this guy who raped and murdered a girl that he brought to prom or whatever. I love that thing because it's just sort of like he just throws off these lines, you know, it was like, you know, and he, but he built something with her bones and it's like, this is dark and weird, but also super peppy. It's like, you know, meatloaf in the Rocky Horror Picture Show could have done this one. What do you think about this? I, I agree. With First of all, I'm going to step back and I think we're going to have to disagree with our, our mercenary laws. I think Roland had every right to be uppity in this. <laughs> I didn't want to let that, I did not want to let that go, but I didn't want to interrupt you while you were speaking either. So. Agree to disagree. Exactly. Uh, what I have, my notes for Excitable Boy were very similar to yours. It's a brilliant contrast. You've got essentially what could pass as death metal lyrics of the non-satanic variety set to music you might find on a Huey Lewis album. You know, it's just, I can actually picture like the lead singer for say, like Lamb of God or Deicide looking at the lyric sheet and going, I can work with those. And uh, Jennifer wants to come do the wow. Yeah, exactly. That's that's all we need. We'll get somebody to do that. It'll be a little deeper. Like I was saying with Roland, this is, uh, it exemplifies Warren Zevon's story, his writing style. You get the the great protagonist and the interesting storyline. And this one, your protagonist is just beyond demented. He starts the song by rubbing a pot roast all over his chest. Then he bites an usherette's leg in a darkened porn theater. They refer to the Clark, which I, I did a little digging, and I think that's supposed to be a porn theater out in California. Then he rapes and kills his girlfriend, and when he gets out, he digs up her bones and builds a cage out of them. Which is, I don't know where that idea came from. I will say, I 
part of my deep dive into this, I ended up purchasing an oral history of Warren Zevon called my uh, my life and times, the dirty life and times of Warren Zevon. One of the the, the the co-writers of this said they were just cracking each other up, which make, comes to your point about he wasn't really taking this seriously. You know, he was sort of, you, you could see him saying this with a smile. They were just dying, laughing, writing this with like, what's the most absurd thing we can come up with? <laughs> and I think that, I think they, they, they got it. So it works. Yeah. And somehow listening to it through a 2020 lens the you know, the rape and murder comes across as probably a bit more shocking these days. Like, I, I don't know if somebody would be able to do that with such a smile on his face, but yeah, it's a, it's a super, super fun song about a super crazy person. So <laughs> to your point, that probably shouldn't have been acceptable in the seventies either. <laughs> yeah. Moving on to our next track, uh, his really only big hit werewolves of London. What do you think? I have two quotes, one from that book and one I saw in a documentary. Warren Zevon actually says, if I had not had that hit, I would have been regarded as a very successful folk singer. And then Wadi Wachtel, as you were describing here, he actually sang the awoos on this. He was not thrilled with this song, said when Electra picked Werewolves as a single, Warren and I just about threw up. We were insulted, depressed. Artistically, it was like a fuck you. They took this piece of shit after we gave them tenderness and Johnny strikes up the band. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure I felt that way about Werewolves. That was the first song I knew, and it was catchy. Really, who hasn't awooed to this song? And when I, when I hear it, it's it's a fun song. It's a great pop song. It's a great rock and roll song. And I, I always I'll always picture Tom Cruise beating the character Moselle in Nine Ball in a in a sleazy Chicago pool hall. I mean that was the you know the hair was perfect and he throws his hand back over his over his highly gelled do. Um, it, it's it was a great song. It's, and as you and I have both agreed previously, songs can be enhanced when they're they're thrown into a movie. I know we both agree on Tiny Dancer and Almost Famous. And I feel the same way about a song about Freebird in another, I'm forgetting the guy's name. Cameron Crowe. Thank you. In another Cameron Crowe movie, Elizabethtown. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that. I have seen it. Not a good movie, but that use of uh, Freebird at the end there, amazing. I loved it. I mean, there's a funeral. The guys are headbanging as the, the sprinklers are like, it's, which fire is happening. Yeah. Nobody understands it, so I'll skip past that. They said they took like 15 minutes to write. They had just been watching the 1930 movie Werewolf of London, and they initially wrote the song to be a dance hit for the Everly Brothers, and they ended up keeping it. Uh, but I, like I said, it's catchy, and there's nothing wrong with catchy, in my opinion. It's, it was a solid song. Yeah, you could dance to it. That's not an insult. I did enjoy the lyrics. I, I love something you can sing along to. It's a great driving song, which you know, always gets higher marks from me. How about yourself? I do like this one, though initially I did not. And I think because it had that Tom Cruise connection, like I just, <laughs> I, didn't, I, it, I don't know. It, it took me a bit. It is catchy as hell. Like that piano hook is really good. Sure. And unfortunately now it has also the, when it song starts, it's like, oh, am I getting Warren Zevon or am I getting Kid Rock? I don't know yet. You know, so it's that, uh, <laughs> You know, Schrodinger's piano intro. And so despite the baggage with it, I do love this song, but it's one that I came to a little bit later. It took me a while to like this one as much as I do. And I know he even came around. They were disappointed that it was released as a single. I think they were actually originally disappointed it was even included on the album. I think they had another song they were hoping would be in its place. And so not only was it on the album, but then released as a single. He didn't always like performing it, but then he kind of always had to perform it. But I think he made his peace with it. He considered it to be a novelty hit. And then he, I think once he kind of made his peace with that, he was fine. I don't know if you watched, what was it? The Larry Sanders show. 
So that was uh, Gary Shandling's HBO show where he, he was a, a talk show host like Johnny Carson. Warren Zevon was supposed to play or one of his final shows. So it was like the last week of his shows because he's retiring and it's the, you know, trying to recreate all the things that happened when Carson retired. Zevon came on and played something off of his latest album because he, and the, the whole thing was him arguing with his manager, Artie, backstage, how he wasn't going to sing, you know, We're Rose of London. Oh, <laughs> and so he, you know, he's like, I'm not playing that fucking song. Uh, and then he plays the song he wants to. And at the end of it, Gary Shannon's like, you know, my all-time favorite song is Werewolves of London. Would you play it for me right now? And so we had to play it, you know. And I don't think Shandling knew, you know, Shandling's character didn't know about the whole backstage thing. And so then he played it. I'm probably misremembering a few elements of that, but I did read that later on. He was like, eh, it was a, it was a novelty hit. That's probably why he could afford to stay in the music business for as long as he did, I think, because oh, sure. of, of, of this song. So... This is a great jukebox song. Like you talk about a great driving song. This is a terrific jukebox song, I think, because of the color of money. Now, you just almost want to hear it. Like when you're drinking beer and shooting pool and this song comes on, nobody's complaining. Yeah. That or like the boys are back in town from Thin Lizzy. Yeah. <laughs> Anything off of ACDC's Back in Black. You know, if those things come on the jukebox, you're like, fuck yeah, we're oh, in the right okay. bar. <laughs> I'm so upset that we're quarantined right now. <laughs> okay, so track five, Accidentally Like a Martyr. So he chooses a ballad to close out the, uh, the the first side here, but this feels a little bit like you know soft rock 101. There's nothing to hold on to me for this one. It's it's not that it's a bad song. I don't know what accidentally like a martyr means. It's fine in the context of the album. Like if I'm listening to the whole if I'm listening to the whole album, I don't skip this one. I never fast forward to it. That's for sure. It, it's and an A side. It's fine. I just don't have much to say about it. I, there's not, there's no hook for it to me. What do you think? I also don't have much to say. I agree with you. It's, it's not a song that I would skip to, but it's also not a song I would pass. It's a solid ballad. I mean, it ticks all the ballad boxes. You've got the heartbreak, the misplaced trust, the somber tone, and it's got some nifty slide guitar in there. Mm. But outside of that, I mean, there's again, especially coming on the heels of those, the three straight songs that we just discussed, it just sort of, it falls short on this album. It may have fit in. It definitely would have highlighted his first album because his first album was garbage, but <laughs> <laughs> on this album, it's, it's, it's a weak link to me. Like I said, I wouldn't skip past it, but I also don't understand accidentally like a martyr. I, the flip side is he drank a lot. So perhaps it made sense to him and his, his state at that time. So sure. And obviously not everything needs to make sense. That brings us to the end of side one of excitable boy by Warren Zevon on, I fucking love this record with my special guest, Eric Schmidt. So Eric, tell me, what are you working on these days? I know the last time we talked to you, were working on a screenplay. What are you, what are you working on these days? My friend, I have abandoned the screenplay. I have accumulated a, as, as you know, we've known each other for years. I have accumulated quite a collection of uh, rejection letters from various agents, publishing houses, etc. I'm actually kind of excited about what I'm writing now. It's the last novel I wrote or, and did not get published, obviously, was I was interested in the topic. And I started when I was looking for agents, I noticed that every other agent was looking for memoirs. I'm not that interesting of a person. So I thought, how about fictitious memoirs? So I'm writing the fictitious memoirs of Judas of Iscariot. Basically, the, the plot line is that he he was actually great friends with Jesus and the whole calling him rabbi in front of the Romans was an accident. Rabbi was just a nickname. And he keeps dying and getting reincarnated. So I get to tell his tales from a historical perspective. Like he, there's one period where he's a Romanian journalist and is interviewing a guy who claims he's a vampire. And there's another one, and this is not going to shock you at all, where he's the lead singer of an 80s metal band, because I'm never <laughs> going to write anything where I do not bring that topic up. So, And he's also, I think the, the, the last chapter has him as a lovelorn teenager in the modern era trying to create a mixed tape for a, a love interest. Because he has so much musical history, having been around from, you know, literally the BC to AD transition, 
he's trying to choose a different song from every era and he's he's set up all those rules kind of like uh for the listeners derek and i once embarked on a challenge where we had to create huge list of songs from every decade but we weren't allowed to repeat artists and various other rules and it thought it was going to take me 10 minutes it took me like three hours it was like a 12 pack of beer it was it was, <laughs> it was painful but anyway that that's what i'm writing and i actually it's coming out as as well as i expected it's it allows me to use my use my true writing voice when i try and write a night when i try and write an actual novel I, I find myself losing my voice whereas if i'm writing memoirs as a former newspaper columnist that's sort of I can reach back to that and it, 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 it feels more natural. I look forward to that. And uh, hopefully somebody will bite. You know, you can start referring to me as the little people. That's what I'm looking you'll, forward to. You'll be editing it before I send it to anybody. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, good. good. I, well, I look forward to that. So uh, that's, um, that's, a, that's a great concept. Uh, I, I love the reimaginings of, of those kinds of things. So good luck with that. And uh, I really hope to see more of that very, very soon. Let's hear a little something from one of our friends. Hi, I'm John, an amateur musician and dad. And I'm Harrison, his younger brother and a recovering know-it-all. And we host a podcast called Play Disc. John is open-minded and well-versed in music theory and composition. And Harrison is extremely online and reflexively contrarian. Hey, I'm not reflexively contrarian. Who wrote this copy? Every other Tuesday, we host a discussion on a different full album showcasing our contrasting energies. And our idiosyncrasies, like John tying everything back to the Beatles. Or Harrison insisting everything is a ska song. Play Disc is available anywhere you get podcasts from. New episodes every other Tuesday. Catch, Catch you, you on, on the, the B-side. B-side. And now, back to the show. So let's flip this record over. Track six, Nighttime in the Switching Yard. 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 Nighttime in the switching yard, get it out on the main line. Listen to the rhythm of the train go by. Get it out on the main line. What do you got for me, Eric? <laughs> this song is borderline offensive, and not because <laughs> of the song itself. It doesn't belong in this CD or this album, rather. It's a disco song. And if this was a 12-track album, sure, I get it. Throw it in if you're trying to get to 12. It's a nine-song album. What the fuck? I mean, seriously. You couldn't have come up with something else? I mean, you were managing... The, the previous album he had had like six or seven songs I absolutely loved. It's self-titled. And they throw this in. It, it is catchy. It just doesn't belong here. Granted, it's, you know, it's released in the 70s, so I get it. And let's face it, Kiss... I've forgiven Kiss for, you know, I was made for loving you. Oh, let's face it. Gene Simmons would have, for 20 bucks, he would have written the score for a B-level porn flick as long as he could have fucking kept the uh, the music rights. This is just, it's a disco song. I, that being said, if you put this in the hands of Sly and the Family Stone, for example, I can see this on the Soul Train dance line. It's not a bad song. It just does not fit with this artist. There's a, I wrote down this lyric. I'm not sure what I was doing. It says, doot, dat, doot, dat, dat, oot. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much, I, there, there's also a line in there where I believe the train runs both, the night train runs both ways. And I, I read a couple of reviews of this CD and one of the critics tried to excuse this as an homage to Gladys Knight and the Pips. I'm not fucking buying it. It does, however, remind me of a song on Warren Zevon's original called Join Me in L.A., which is also has a funk vibe to it. But really, all in all, I could do without this one. So I like that it's side two opens up with this disco jam, right? So what I want to know is how many people in 1978 buy this record, listen to side one, go grab a beer or smoke a joint, come back, flip the record over, and then suddenly this song comes out and thought, did something go wrong at the printing press? You know, do I have a different record on side two? God damn it. I wish I had that take. <laughs> That's such a great. <laughs> and there's got to be until he starts singing, they're thinking, wait a minute. Because I remember getting something like a CD from, I know it was like a, my roommate's girlfriend, now his wife, had bought something through BMG or Columbia House or whatever. And it was supposed to be, I think, a monster magnet record. And it was not 
that, you know, so what was actually on the CD was not Monster Magnet. <laughs> it was like a country record or something. It was just clearly a, a, a printing mistake. And so you flip it over and suddenly you got the big bass line. And, and then until Warren starts singing, it's like, oh, I, I don't know if this is the right record. And, and it took me a while because this is the most dated sounding song on this record. I think a handful of these songs... Now, of course, you're going to associate Werewolves of London, depending on whether you heard this in 1978 or if you heard it in 1986, you may associate it with that particular era, but it doesn't necessarily sound of that era. This one sounds like 19, between 1978 and 1981, and the only time this song comes out, right? Uh, and the thing is, he didn't have, he was fairly unknown to the public at large at this point. So he's got one album that you even said is terrible, one album that flopped. This is the only album he had that really went to the public conscious. So it wasn't like Kiss doing I Was Made For Loving You or the Rolling Stones doing What Was It Miss You or Rod Stewart doing Do You Think I'm Sexy? Because those, you know, like fans of those groups were, or, or artists were mad about that because it felt like they betrayed their rock and roll roots. Whereas Warren Zevon doesn't have a career to betray at this point. You know what? I don't mind this song. I don't mind it. I don't, I, I don't know if it fits on this record, but I love that it's on the first song on side two, just because of what we talked about. And I kind of feel that's really on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> knowing his sense of humor, knowing the way he writes, it's like, all right, I'm going to slip a disco song and I'm going to put it on <laughs> song one, side two, just so people spend a minute thinking somebody fucked up at the printing press. I'll give you that, but I'm not going to buy that Rod Stewart's fans thought they were betrayed. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll stick with we'll stick with Kiss and the Rolling Stones. Okay. So, I'll, I'll make a playlist. I'll put this on, and, and then I'll listen. To I was made for loving you because whatever. Can't believe Rod Stewart's name came up. That's <laughs> so, all right, man. Take a step back. All right, that's fine. Okay, next track, Vera Cruz. This is an, probably the only other ballad other than um, final song on side one. And it's got like a, a flute opening up. Uh, it's like Ron Burgundy has joined the, the conversation. The way he sings it, it's it's almost like you're supposed to think Vera Cruz is a woman, but I know it's not. I mean, this is about like geopolitics or something, you know, it's uh, I don't know how I feel about this song. Like the only note I have for this song is flute. <laughs> that's it. That's all I got. So, Eric, you're gonna have to do some heavy lifting here. What do you got to say about Vera Cruz? Well, unfortunately, my my first note is "Love the Flute Intro," <laughs> but I will. I also added one of the few songs with a flute that I will note that is not performed by Jethro Tull. So, I have I have that little addition. I did do a little research into this, and this song was written about the U.S. was occupying Vera Cruz during the American. I'm sorry, during the Mexican Revolution. There was something about something called the Tempiro Affair. It was involving U.S. sailors and a, a Mexican military force back in 2014, something along those lines, which they, they reference Woodrow Wilson in the song. The U.S. invaded Veracruz, occupied it for six months, and it led to the fall of the, the president of Mexico at the time, Victor Huerta. That being said, historical significance aside, I don't really have much about this. I did read one review of this CD, which I disagree with wholeheartedly, they were saying this album was so dark because Warren Zevon was trying to discredit the U.S. foreign policy. The first song in their defense of that argument was Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner. I was like, fuck off. That's not what he was trying to do. It's, But it, it was worthy of a mention, if nothing else, just to try and add material to the Veracruz song <laughs> notes I had for this. It, it, it wasn't a bad song. It just it didn't do anything for me. That's That's the best I can say for it. I feel that way about you know, both the ballads. Like I, I like when he's mid-tempo or better. And that not that he has a bad voice or is not doing whatever, but just the, the the two ballads on this album, while not bad, just don't do a whole lot for me. Agreed. 
Okay, so on to tenderness on the block. Mama, where's your pretty little girl tonight? Trying to run before she can walk. That's right. She's going up. She has a young man waiting. She's going up. She has a young man waiting. What do you think about this one? This one... I liked it, but I felt let down. It had a storyish song. I mean, the lyrics are about a girl growing up, and the dad sort of has to accept that she's grown up and has to. It's that's a whole dad letting go type of thing. But I really, really felt like something demented was going to happen, and it never happened. It was just you just kept listening to the lyrics, and you're like, okay, I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it. And nothing. The song ends. Uh, I dealt. I dove into that. The the oral history book I was talking about. And Crystal Sivan had mentioned that Warren and she were talking about that he wanted to create more fights, which if you read that book is insane. You never, you hit that, that, uh, that saying, you never want to meet your heroes. You definitely don't want to read about them. I mean, he's a raging alcoholic and he beat his wife, et cetera, et cetera. It's not, he was not a likable person when I came away from the book, but he said he wanted to get into more fights, create more fights, create more drama so he could, experience pain firsthand with regards to this song he had a huge argument with crystal Devon. she called jackson brown he came running over and jackson brown's story is we clearly kept drinking because i don't remember what happened but when we woke up we had written this song and during the <laughs> during the argument apparently orange Devon had ripped the banister out of the wall and nobody ever mentioned the banister ripping again <laughs> That's all I got for this. It's I like I said, I was let down. I really thought it was going to turn into something more like Excitable Boy, and it, it was just nothing. It was sort of a ballad that went nowhere. The thing that I appreciate about this song, but I want to talk about it musically first before I get to the lyrics, because it really opens up with that. It sounds almost, you know, I know this came out in 78, so like this late 70s, but almost like early 80s sound. Like, I feel like not lyrically but musically this could have been on the fast times at ridgemont high soundtrack well careful you're, you're treading on some gentle ground some sacred ground there sir i mean this in the best way so i mean obviously it, it doesn't fit there lyrically but mm -hmm. musically i think this is something that could have been there and i mean that in the best way possible but it has that like rick springfield or john cougar just that not quite hard rock rock and roll sure kind of stuff from the early 80s like musically that's how it sounds especially at the beginning like mm -hmm. it doesn't have it doesn't really sound like warren zevon right from the start and as you said this is a, is a story about a girl coming of age but i think what makes this song different is that it's not from the girl's perspective it's not from the father's perspective it's more of like an omniscient narrator talking to the father so almost like the father's conscience maybe so everything's being told, it's like, she is going to do this and you can't do that. You know, it's like, she's going to go out. You can't ask her where she's going. You can't ask her where she's been. She's becoming a woman. You know, so it's, I think the way that the story is told makes the song at least a little bit interesting. I think if he would have gone dark at the end, it would have almost been a little too on the nose. That's an interesting point. I would have argued for a different title, though, because tenderness on the block almost leads you to believe that she became a hooker. Okay. Yeah, I get that. I get that. And and that, again, may have been on purpose. He may, because you, you listen to that first half, uh, you know, That's the first true. side, I should say. And then maybe that was more of a setup. Like he wants you to think something bizarre is going to happen. And it, and it really doesn't. It's a fairly, it's a fairly tender song, but it's not, it's, I think... It didn't hit me till later. It's not really told from the father's perspective. It's somebody talking to the father or with him maybe thinking about it himself from this sure. omniscient place. And I think that's really the only thing that makes it. I mean, musically, it's good because, I mean, again, it's early Tom Petty. It's just that whole, it's, you know, 1978 to 1982 rock music in that, in that front. And it's not, you know, there's some piano in it, but it's not piano led like a lot of the other songs are. And not one I dial up directly, but I think I think fits pretty well on this record. And I think it's it's well placed that if you put this song 
pretty much anywhere else, maybe it doesn't work, but hiding it as the second to last song is good because you don't you wouldn't want to put a ballad in this place. And I don't think either of the ballads on this album are good enough to be the last song. So we're gonna move on to the last song, Lawyers, Guns and Money. And man, do I fucking love this song. <laughs> I love everything about this song. <laughs> I love the story of the song. And I think, well, Excitable Boy is a great title for a record. And I think this also could have made a great title for the record. Like if you would have called this album Lawyers, Guns, and Money, and you release this one, man, I just, this song is great. You know, so it's just, it, it, it does all the things that, you know, it ties in geopolitics with just some poor fucked up rich boy who's got himself into trouble and just like the, the, you know, send lawyers, guns and money, dad, get me out of this. I'm like, this should be like the, the Derek care of you anthem. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's just so much, you know, I went home with the waitress, which I always do. Uh, how was I to know she was with the Russians too? I don't, I just, there's so much to love about the song. I love that it's the last song because as I mentioned a million times in the show, I'm a sucker for a, a, a slow closer, but I also like that closer that really pops. And this closer pops. This is such a great song. This is another one that's fun to play, especially when pe other people know the song and the court, you know, send lawyers, guns and money. You know, you just sing along with that. And that, oh, sure. that's, that's a good one. What do you think about this? I was actually worried about this. I have a note saying, I hope Derek doesn't criticize this because I know you're the sucker for the ballad closer or the slow closer. I wasn't sure if this was going to fit your closing status. Uh, I think I read it. I, I heard in a doc or I read in the book, this may have charted higher and I could be completely wrong on this. I thought it charted higher than Werewolves of London. I think this reached four and Werewolves reached eight or something along those lines. Like that could be completely wrong. It, if it's from the doc, that I saw Warren was suffering. He was there interviewing while he had cancer, so his mm. his head may have been cloudy. Who knows? But uh, this is this is a great song. I mean, I knew this song basically from when I was in middle school on up. I don't think I understood the lyrics <laughs> when I was that young, <laughs> but I agree with you. It's it's hilarious and it's a great story. And it's one of the few songs where you listen to the chorus and you just start laughing as you were saying, "Send lawyers, guns, and money, Dad, get me out of this." It's 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 great. I mean, it, it's 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 funny. I mean, it makes you laugh out loud. The only criticism I have, it's, it uses a mind numbing number of idioms. You know, rock in a hard place, down on my luck, shit is hit the fan. I mean, this is basically like rat with love and use a dirty job. With they wild and woolly, you put me through the ringer, break my heart in pieces. It's, it's like, all right, I get it. You can, you can filter a bunch of common sayings into your song, but it's it really is a good song. And this was actually you mentioned before a political. It could be construed as political. This was the third song that critic listed as in Zivon's criticism of uh, foreign policy, with him being stuck in Honduras and Honduras being a, you know, a hot, somewhat of a hotbed in Central America. And I, I, I did enjoy this though. It is one of my favorite songs on the CD, and probably if I was going to list a top my top ten Warren Zivon songs, it sits easily in there. It, it fits nicely, and it is a great close to a CD. And as you said, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It could have been. This album could have been Lawyers, Guns, and Money. And it actually, I think that would have made a better title. It's, it's catchier. Yeah, definitely. I just remembered one of the times I was home to visit. So after I'd moved to Poland, I was out drinking with my family. It was one of the, we were at a bar that had one of those jukeboxes that was connected to the internet. So if it wasn't on their regular playlists, you could spend the extra quarter and get anything you wanted, essentially. And I wanted to hear this one. And I don't think my, sisters really know this song or whatever, but I'm like, all right. So I, I paid the extra money to play this one and I played it twice. So they would hear it once. And then the next time we were all singing that chorus. So a <laughs> bunch of, a bunch of drunk care reviews. And it was, I think it was a, like a mid afternoon type drinking day. So the, the sun was still out and we're like, yeah. And then singing along to the chorus. And I always thought that he did the cliche thing because the guy, like the protagonist is kind of dim. 
I think that's like the, the, the guy has no depth. Oh, that's interesting. So I like that. And that's why it's not like lazy songwriting as much as it's, you know, he's, I'm sure, you know, he's, he's an attractive, rich guy that is not very bright is how I took that. That's even, I, 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 I like that defense because it defends the song. So, and I, I didn't <laughs> want to criticize the song. <laughs> I could not let it up, especially because the rat thing kept going through my head over and I was like, God damn, this is just like that song. You listen to him in concert, you're like, all right, I get it, Stephen Piercy. Stop singing the same things over. <laughs> <laughs> so that brings us to our final thoughts. Eric, what are your final thoughts? I liked it. It's not my favorite Lawrence Yvon album. Actually, my my favorite one is the one that was produced right before it, um, his self-titled, which has my favorite song of all time of Lawrence Yvon, Muhammad's Radio, which I thought was this touching story. I'm not religious at all. I don't believe in anything. But I thought it was about a problem. So it was a religious song Based on the book, it's about his dead drug dealers. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's an interesting little twist. But it, it's still a pretty song, and I like that. But overall, this is a great song. And I wanted to read one quote I, I read from his, or I got from his doc. He's said, I failed so successfully <laughs> that I became a good folk, folk musician. <laughs> it's like, it's, I don't know why he won't let this go. You're not a folk musician. You're a rock and roll guy. I, I just thought that was great. It's like he's still hanging on to his dream. But I, I love that he was able to release so many songs that that exemplified his writing. I, I, as a writer or an attempted writer, I just really enjoy reading stuff like listening to stuff like this and reading the lyrics. And he actually he made his first money writing the b-side for the turtles song happy together that it financed his very early career which may have been how he was able to afford that and i hate to keep criticizing but that first cd was just garbage and if you get a chance to listen to like three tracks on that let me know because it's it's just painful <laughs> I'll, I'll try to keep the good memories okay. um, <laughs> fair enough so this is one i like to revisit every once in a while mainly because of roland and Lawyers, Guns, and Money. And that will get me to go through the whole thing. It's like you said, it's only nine tracks. Uh, even if I bump, and if you bump past the two ballads, which aren't aren't much, you know, this is a pretty breezy record. And it's one that if you haven't listened to all the way through, I would encourage any of my listeners to listen to all the way through and then go listen to The Wind, which was his final record, which is really, really good. And, and in a few places, great. You know, there's oh, like when... I'm going to end this on the last time Warren Zevon was on David Letterman. David Letterman had that circle from his first show of just people who would come on. And I know that Warren Zevon was one of Letterman's favorites. He played just before he died. He came on to to uh, pitch the last record and played something from, I don't remember what he played. And then Dave has him come over on the on the chair. I don't remember what the question was like, you know, what have you learned or what would you say? And and Warren Zevon said, enjoy every sandwich. <laughs> that was I, I the, the other part of the another part of the interview was funny. Something it had something to do with the fact that I not going to the doctor may have been a bad strategy for 50 years <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So this is the part where I normally do a little call to action and ask the listeners to do something for my show. But instead, I think I'm just going to stick with that. And if you have made it this far, if you've listened this long, I'm going to ask you to enjoy every sandwich. Eric Schmidt, thank you so much for coming back for season three. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find all of our episodes at lovethisrecord.com. Intro and outro music by The Ashes of Grissom. And thanks as always to original patron, Mark Evers.